I want to start and get a little bit of uh, audience participation here to get our subject uh, underway. Um, and I, I, have, uh, I have some thoughts that I put down, but I have a feeling that we'll get at these thoughts uh, one way or another just from your feedback. But I want you to give me uh, maybe some words, just some individual words or maybe small phrases that you would use to characterize our sort of our general culture here in America. It's a pretty broad statement. I'm speaking broadly, but give me some, some terms or some words that you would use to characterize our culture here in America. Free? Okay. Immoral. Immoral. Okay. I said immoral. Yeah, immoral, yeah, immoral. Okay. Self-willed, maybe? Okay. What else? Proud. Self-centered. Any other terms come to mind? I mean, these are all good. I'm just kind of seeing if there's any. Trending towards anti-Christian. Post-Christian, I would call it. Okay, post-Christian, to use a sociological term that's often cited in surveys and statistical analysis. We are a post-Christian culture, they might say. All right. Entertainment-oriented. Okay, good. Entertainment-driven, entertainment-oriented, focused on... Entertainment, that's good. Hypocritical. Hypocritical. Okay. So, I'll, I'll give you my list, and I think that we've probably touched on this list already in one way or another, but I kind of made my little list, and this is certainly not exhaustive. I mean, we could spend a lot of time here coming up with terms, and not all of which are, would be negative or bad, for sure, um, but, but a lot of what we think about when we think about culture, oftentimes it it moves our thinking in a direction of those elements of our culture, those characteristics of our culture that would be antithetical to our faith, that would be antithetical to the God we love and serve, that would be antithetical to his truth, because that, of course, um, for those who claim faith in Christ and claim to walk with God, that is an all-consuming way of thinking and seeing the world, right? So when you look out there and you just evaluate how you would characterize sort of the dominant themes and the dominant priorities of culture, it's very easy to feel a certain assault of the conscience um, in light of who God is and who you know God to be and what his word instructs us to be and what God's purposes are for man and all that. So it really, the culture at large in general tends to be an affront to the Christian worldview to varying degrees. I put my list in the form of, of areas of focus. What, what, what our culture tends to focus on, and again, this is just, this is just a brief list, very brief list. We could, we could spend a lot of time coming up with a lot of different ways to describe it, but uh, the first one I put down is that our culture has a huge focus on pragmatism, on pragmatism. In other words, what works is what's best. So you determine what is good or bad or right or wrong based upon what works, what's most efficient. Another area of focus is there's this massive focus on feelings. What feels best is what's best. Huge focus on that. There is a focus, I believe, in our culture on personal convenience. So what's most convenient, or you might recognize the term used all the time, what is most user-friendly is what's best. 
Or there's a focus on self-gratification. What is most satisfying in the moment is what's best. Or there's a huge focus on self-promotion. What makes me look good to others is what's best. And of course, there's a huge focus, particularly in the area of uh, under underlying philosophy, uh, the way you think about things, the way you support the reasons for why you do certain things or think in certain ways. There's a huge focus in our culture on tolerance, this idea of tolerance. In other words, what is least just what is least just judgmental is what's best. What is most open to most ideas and the least judgmental, the least sort of spiritually or philosophically offensive, that's what's best. So there's a huge focus on tolerance. But as we think about this account of the flood that we've been talking about, this flood narrative in Genesis chapters 6 through 8, the more I look at this and the more I think about it and the more I just kind of read through it over and over again and think about the various components of it and the the areas of focus and emphasis that flow out of this narrative, I don't know if you could come up with a greater collision with the modern sensibilities of our current culture than this flood narrative. Uh, The more I think about it, it, it's not just a collision. It is a comprehensive, violent collision with the modern mindset and with modern culture in so many ways. Modern culture's values and priorities, it just collides with it in, in a massive way. And yet, it masterfully encapsulates God's nature, His purpose for man, his plans and his priorities for all of mankind, for all time. It Basically, this narrative kind of gives you this encapsulated view of really in fundamental ways who God is, what he's like, what his purposes are, and how he works those purposes out in time through his work through man. So it's interesting to me to think about the flood narrative in that light, that that it is not just a a great portion of redemptive history to look at. It's not just a fascinating part of uh, the biblical narrative to look at because of the content of of the story and of what took place. But it literally is, uh, it does encapsulate elements of who God is and what His purposes are that are, are on just a constant collision course with the modern American mind and the historical American mind, the historical minds of men all, uh, for all time and eternity as well. What I want to do today is I want to look, as a, as a sort of a launching point, I want to go back and look at verses 5 to 8 of chapter 6, and then we're going we're to spring into other sections of the narrative throughout chapters 7 and 8. But I want to use that, those few verses as a launch point because they are really a great summary of the entire narrative. Obviously, I, I emphasize the term summary, but they do a really good job of just summarizing everything that's going to come after. So if you would, look at Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 to 8, and I'll read it for us. It says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want to kind of just break this little summary, few verses down into a bit of an outline, even though I don't intend to sort of outline um, this narrative. It's very difficult to just come up with a you know, point one, point two, point three outline of uh, really historical narrative in general. But I want to kind of draw out some categories of emphasis that, that really spring from this little summary section, but, but are really played out in more detail as you go through the rest of the narrative. And the first thing that I want to kind of spend a little bit more time focusing on, and we've certainly touched on this uh, in various ways over the course of the last few weeks, but I want, to, I want to characterize it a little more descriptively in light of my opening questions and some of the terms that you guys mentioned and that I kind of mentioned as well to characterize uh, our modern culture and how this collides with that. You recall I, I made some comments about how there's this focus on what works or what makes us feel good or what's convenient or what gratifies us or what promotes us and makes us look good or what's most tolerant. But when you look at this flood narrative, you're confronted with the harsh reality, and I mean harsh reality, of God's assessment of man's true condition. And it is stark and harsh. It is not oriented toward making man feel good about themselves. It is not oriented toward being easy on man's sensibilities. It is, it is harsh. It is a harsh reality. And we talked about this in past weeks, but you see what God describes as pervasive outward wickedness when he says the wickedness of man was great in the earth and comprehensive inward corruption. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that goes so far as to describe the the thoughts and intentions, not to say that every act of man outwardly could be characterized as wicked, It's just to describe the fact that even man's external acts of virtue were polluted by inward corruption. They were like a polluted garment, like Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 64, that even the righteousness of man was corrupted by the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. And and really that's true, that can be true of us from time to time, but it's certainly true of so much of of, um, modern cultural um, charitable work, and um, that's right, do-goodism is another good word to, to describe it, where the, there's the acts that are performed, the charitable deeds that are performed, monies that are raised to you know, go after these kinds of cures of these diseases and all that, in and of themselves, it's, it's a virtuous thing to do, but the motivations of people who get really exercised and involved in them oftentimes are oriented toward some level of self-fulfillment of personal validation, of even personal promotion to put on display their acts of virtue. And that's the nature of man. That is at the core, root, heart nature of man. And and this flood narrative begins by putting that on vivid display. And it is such a huge contrast. He goes on down in in chapter uh, 6, verses 11, to, to make a more... Uh, descript uh, statement where it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And then God makes this statement to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So comprehensive, pervasive, outward wickedness and inward corruption is the true state of man. 
And the reason why I bring up this contrast is just think, think with me for a moment about this particular example. According to the Millennium Project, you might say, well, what's the Millennium Project? According to the Millennium Project, there are 15 global challenges facing humanity. And here's, what the, here's the Millennium Project, and this is a massive organization. The Millennium Project was founded in 1996 after a three-year feasibility study with the United Nations University, the Smithsonian Institution, Futures Group International, and the American Council for the United Nations University. It is now an independent, nonprofit, global participatory futures research think tank of futurists, scholars, business planners, and policymakers who work for international organizations, governments, corporations, NGOs, and universities. This is, this is, the Millennium Project is a very far-reaching collection of people from all walks of life who see themselves as thinking rightly about mankind and what is best for mankind's present and future. So the Millennium Project has come up with the 15 challenges, global challenges facing humanity. Now here's the 15 challenges, and they put them in the form of questions. Number one, how can sustainable development be achieved for all, for all while addressing global climate change? That's the number one global challenge facing humanity. Number two, how can everyone have sufficient clean water without conflict? Again, I'm all for clean water initiatives, but that's the number two global challenge facing humanity. Number three, how can population growth and resources be brought into balance? Number four, how can genuine democracy emerge from authoritarian regimes? Number five, how can decision-making be enhanced by integrating improved global foresight during unprecedented accelerating change? I'm not even sure what that sentence means. Number six, how can the global convergence of information and communications technologies work for everyone? Number seven, how can ethical market economies be encouraged to help reduce the gap between rich and poor? Again, so the economic issues. How can the threat, uh, number eight, how can the threat of new and re-emerging diseases and immune microorganisms be reduced? Number nine, how can education make humanity more intelligent, knowledgeable, and wise enough to address its global challenges? Number ten, how can shared values, shared values, and new security strategies reduce ethnic conflicts, terrorism, and the use of weapons of mass destruction. Number 11, how can the changing status of women help improve the human condition? Number 12, how can transnational organized crime networks be stopped from becoming more powerful and sophisticated global enterprises? Number 13, how can growing energy demands be met safely and efficiently? Number 14, how can scientific and technological breakthroughs be accelerated to improve the human condition? And number 15, how can ethical considerations become more routinely incorporated into global decisions? The brightest and best and most broadly experienced thinkers in modern culture, this is their list. And yet, Genesis in the flood narrative just simply says, that's not the problem. That is not the problem. It's not a lack of good explanations, 
about God and what he expects. It's not the presence of so many hypocrites who claim devotion to a good and loving God, but who are anything but good and loving. It's not low self-esteem, difficult socioeconomic situations, or underperforming schools. It's not inadequate answers to life's most difficult and perplexing questions. And it's none of these things on this list of 15 from the Millennium Project. It is, and always has been, and will forever be until the Lord returns, this pervasive outward wickedness that is the outflow of comprehensive inward corruption. That the thoughts and intentions of man's heart is only evil continually. That's correct. Humanism. That's correct. And yet, the, the eternal, transcendent, declaration of God and his assessment on all mankind, whether they recognize him or not, is this. Well, man today says God is love, and they never refer to him as the great God. You know, this, I'm glad you bring that point up, because I, wanted, I also wanted to get from you comments or thoughts about how you would characterize the modern American church. Give me some terms that you would do to characterize that. Well, just in general. I mean, just the, the predominant. I'm, I'm being very general. Feckless. Feckless. Moldable. Moldable. Social. Yes, more socially oriented. Okay. Entertainment. Entertainment oriented. In other words, when you start thinking about, again, painting with very broad brushes here, when you think about the, the, the modern American church, it's very similar to the same characterizations you would give to modern American culture. It's just that it puts you know, slants and angles of faith and religious practice and music and worship and everything, the accoutrements of it. But the focus, again, the focus oftentimes in modern, amongst modern Christians and, and organized churches in that, in that area, in that arena, is really to to best engage the, the fallenness of mankind. Not to confront it with the truth, but to engage it and somehow make it feel less fallen. In other words, to not be confrontational, to not be intolerant, to not be closed-minded. And so, again, the same kind of areas of focus often plague people when they think about both personal evangelism and personal engagement with lost people around them, as well as churches as an organized effort for evangelism and mission in a community, oftentimes the focus does move toward pragmatism. What works? What gets the most people here? What, what brings the biggest crowd? That's, what, that's what's best. It's not being judgmental. That's right. We, we want to make sure, in fact, you'll, you'll hear over and over again, you'll hear almost what would sound like apologies from pulpits for you know, being, not being offensive. I don't mean to offend. I mean, it's like there's a, there's a caveat that's often couched with messages where they feel like that, you know, they have to say something about the human condition and something rela- related to the truthfulness from Scripture of the human condition. But then there's almost a caveat of an apology on the back end or the front end of that statement because they don't want to offend. And I'm just saying that when you look at the flood narrative as, as a, a composite of God and His revelation... It is not. It is not oriented toward 
uh, you know, seeking not to offend. It's just oriented toward there's a harsh reality that needs to be conveyed here. And it is, and it is comprehensive in nature. Yeah, pervasive evil. So that... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a certain utopic vision that's there that, like, if we just did these things, if we could just, if we could just solve the water problem, or if we could just solve the communications problem, or if we could just, you know, have people, you know, better educated and so that they could make wise decisions about everything. So education, you know, whatever education means. Um, and and there's, these, there's these ideas that if we could just all push for this. But you start introducing any kind of sectarian thinking, like, I believe Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died on a cross on behalf of sinners and was raised on the third day and will return again. I mean, if you start talking in those kinds of terms, you're not, you're not part of this project. Tolerance comes to a rapid That's right. That's right. So, so again, just, just kind of pushing the point forward that, that when you look at this, this account of the flood, not only do you see it for its amazing revelation of who God is and this fascinating story of God's redemption and judgment, but in such a unique and profound way and and means, but you also see how it just directly clashes. It collides with modern, fallen man sensibilities in so many ways. So you see this, first of all, in this harsh reality of man's condition, of God's, really God's assessment of man's condition. But then that's even further sort of elaborated when you look at the sweeping severity and the global magnitude of God's judgment of man's sin. Now, I think of, think of this communication. Think of, think of communicating the heart of God in this way. I mean, you alluded to it a second ago about God being a, a judging God. It, it, is, it is utterly inescapable when you read the flood narrative to see God as a just and all-powerful and completely sovereign judge. I mean, it is, it's overwhelming to really think about it. When you look at the flood narrative, what you see is total, violent destruction of all mankind and everything under his dominion. Except. Except. That's right. Everything outside that box. Everything. He says in chapter 6, verse 7, I will blot out man, a term that means erase by washing. Just erase, eliminate. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And we talked about this several weeks ago, but population estimates put the population at this time at possibly close to 7 to 10 billion people. I'll kind of give you some information that would extrapolate that. 
1850, the world population was at a billion people. By 1930, we had 2 billion people. By 1950, we had 3 billion people, and today we are at about 6 to 7 billion. It's closer to 7. I think the statistic's a little old. I think it's more like 7 billion. So in 150 years, the world population grew from 1 billion to 6 to 7 billion people. And people are not living 900 years-ish like they were in the days of Noah. So you can only imagine a time before there were birth control devices and people were living for hundreds of years, the population growth was likely explosive. So think of that. Out of whatever it was, billions of people, there was a few. There was a few. Everyone else were the recipients of God's sweeping, severe judgment. And it's right there on the pages of Scripture, and it's in vivid detail, without apology. Chapter 6, verse 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Chapter 7, verse 4, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Genesis 7, 11 to 12, and then following down to 17 to 23 in Genesis chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And then skipping down to verse 17, the flood continued forty days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind, everything on the dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Over and over and over again, descriptive terms of what God did in this judgment. I mean, it is an an assault on modern sensibilities for who God is, or who God should be, is probably a better way to say it. God should be a God who really cares. He should be a God who really loves us where we are. You know, things like that, terms like that. Exactly right. So we fail to see ourselves in light of who he is, and we fail to see him in light of who he is. And it, it creates this, this mindset of relatability that is just so man-centered and so flawed. So this comprehensive destruction that is described in the flood narrative, just to give you a little bit of um, um, scientific data to kind of uh, just give you some other context for the sweeping nature of this event. It is beyond dispute among geologists that on every continent we find fossils of sea creatures and rock layers which today are high above sea level. For example, we find marine fossils in most of the rock layers in the Grand Canyon. This includes the topmost layer in the sequence, the Kaibab limestone exposed at the rim of the canyon, which today is approximately 7,000 to 8,000 feet above sea level. 
Marine fossils are also found high in the Himalayas, the world's tallest mountain range, reaching up to 29,029 feet above sea level. For example, fossil ammonites, or coiled marine cephalopods, are found in limestone beds in the Himalayas of Nepal. All geologists agree that ocean waters must have buried these marine fossils in these limestone beds. Last week I read to you some information about the concept known as catastrophic plate tectonics, or as a scientist like to call CTP. Just kidding. That's what they call it, CTP. If you're in the scientific community, that's your acronym. We talked about how uh, Dr. John Bumgardner created this model, this computer model. It's, It's known as the it's been acknowledged as having the, the best 3D computer model of plate tectonics or how the continental plates shift and move. And he created this model to show that the tectonic plate movement could have occurred very rapidly and spontaneously and it would have resulted in catastrophic event or a deluge and a drastic effect on the Earth's geologic features. Scientists are coming to grips with catastrophic geology. In 2002, the overflow of Canyon Lake in Texas and the foremost of Canyon Lake Gorge, excuse me, and the formation of Canyon Lake Gorge, um, it's a little over two miles long and an average depth of 23 feet. So you have this gorge that formed. It's a two-mile gorge, 23 feet deep. The gorge is far smaller, to say the least, than the Grand Canyon, but given that it was formed just uh, after three days of heavy flooding, is instructive regarding the power of fast-moving water. Now, California Institute of Technology geologist Michael Lamb and Texas State University geographer Mark Fonsted report in Nature Geoscience some of the implications that this indubitably rapid formation of the canyon has for mainstream geology. Their press release release states this, Our traditional view of deep river canyons, such as the Grand Canyon, is that they are carved slowly as the regular flow and occasional moderate rushing of rivers erodes rock over periods of millions of years. Such is not always the case, however. The scientists used a combination of aerial photography and field measurements of the area where the gorge now lies to estimate the rate of erosion during the flood. Amazingly, the team determined that the rate of erosion was limited only by the amount of sediment the floodwater could carry, which speaks volumes for the erosive power of the retreating waters of a global flood. This is one of the few places where models for canyon formation can be tested because we know the flood conditions under which this canyon formed, Lamb stated. His point, while presumably not intended as such, reminds us that when it comes to most geologic formations, we haven't observed how they formed. All bring some sort of presuppositions to the table, such as that natural processes have persisted basically unchanged over time, or that God sent a worldwide flood to destroy humankind. So either the presupposition of a cataclysmic event like a flood, or that things have evolved over a long period of time. There's some presupposition, in other words, that's informing people's thinking there. And then another point about this this flood and the realities of it, um, you look at flood legends from around the world as another example. I'm just kind of giving you some interesting data points about the the cataclysmic, comprehensive nature of this event. There are stories about a worldwide flood are found in historic records all over the world. According to Dr. Dwayne Gish, there are more than 270 such stories, most of which share a common theme and similar characters to the Genesis account of this event. What oftentimes happens is that uh, biblical critics will say, for example, the Gilgamesh epic is a big, um, a big historical sort of Mesopotamian, ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian um, discovery, document discovery, 
And it has flood narrative in it. And so they'll, and it also has creation narrative in it too. It's obviously very different than the Genesis. But what they'll say is that, that the writer of Genesis pulled from these other sources to craft the Genesis account. So in other words, the actual event itself is not the source that led to all these different stories that are now part of historical cultural legend, but it was that the writer of Genesis drew from these legendary tales to write write its own tale for the Hebrews. The reason for these flood stories is not difficult to understand, the writer of this article says. When we turn to the history book of the universe, the Bible, we learn that Noah's descendants stayed together for approximately 100 years until God confused their languages at Babel, Genesis 11, 1-9. As these people moved away from Babel, their descendants formed nations based primarily on the languages they shared in common. Through those languages, the story of the flood was shared until it became embedded in their cultural history. So it's just fascinating to think about how you've got these, these I mean, and it's, it's widespread. I mean, there's a table that I'd love to be able to put up on the wall and show you of all these different sort of flood stories, flood legends from cultures all over the world. And there's this grid that it shows of how many of the features of the Genesis flood are contained in some way in those, those accounts. And when you think about the nature of passing on of information and, and story and legend and all that, uh, it makes perfect sense that it, that, that could be a, a, a something that would take place over time, particularly um, after Genesis 11. So the point of all that is just to raise this, this issue up to us once again, that when you look at modern American culture and all of its sensibilities and all of its priorities and all of its areas of focus that we've already talked about, and when you look at how that can often be a great influence on individual believers as well as churches and how they approach the culture and how they engage the culture and really how they communicate the Word of God or how they convey the character and nature of God to others. Oftentimes, that vision or that picture or that image is drastically muted. It's drastically altered because the last thing we want to do is to convey a God who is this harsh, what kind of God would do this kind of thing such that all of life that breathed, that had the breath of life in it was destroyed? What kind of God would do that? And yet, the truth of Scripture, as well as evidence from various spheres of science, would indicate that this actually happened in reality. And it... it Yeah, that's right. Think of a cow walked into your backyard and dropped dead. And you didn't do anything. What would happen? Would it would smell. Animals would come and yep. apart. And yep. It would be disintegrated just Yeah. There's some really there's some really compelling and fascinating information out there about the fossil record, about the the what the necessity of of how those fossils could be contained or uh, preserved in the way that they're preserved in the rock layers, what would be required for that to happen. Um, and it all points to a flood cataclysm. It's really fascinating kind of um, study. But it, it, if, you, if you're coming at it from a, an evolutionary uh, predisposition, you could argue from that predisposition as well. It's just that what happens is, is that people assume 
that to come at it from a biblical mindset is non-scientific, and so therefore it has to be dismissed. You can't, you can't, you just can't do that. That's why the scientific community just basically says you can't bring in anything regarding faith into the study of science. That's just that's just a non sequitur. It can't even be introduced into the equation. Now, obviously, the intelligent design movement is having some impact on even that very notion. But it's it's uh, it's an interesting an interesting uh, th- thought process when you think about what how people make their arguments. They're making them based upon presuppositions that they brought to the evidence and how they're interpreting the evidence that they're seeing in one degree or another. So, <clears throat> again, when you look at this, you see this great collision with our modern culture and the sensibilities of our modern culture. What we're going to talk about next week, and this will kind of wrap up, I think, our, our study of the flood narrative, and then we'll move into to uh, the next phase of, of Noah in, in Genesis chapter 9. But you also, in addition to seeing God's harsh, harsh assessment, you know, this harsh reality of God's assessment of man's condition, and, and in addition to seeing this, this uh, sweeping severity of global, the global magnitude of God's judgment on man and his sin, what we also see, which is also characteristic of God, characteristic of his plan and purposes, it's, it's, it's the same as it's always been. It's the same that you see revealed all throughout Scripture. It's the same today. What you see is God's grand, or excuse me, the grand and yet very specific scale of God's redemption. It's grand. God's plan of redemption and God's means of redemption is on grand scale, and yet it's very, very specific in its appropriation, its application. And to give you a hint toward that, think about what we've already talked about. Seven billion people, and how many survived? And yet, what was the task that was given to Noah? Build a giant vessel that people would see over the course of a year. Construct this vessel. Declare the coming judgment. And the New Testament describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness too. So we're going to look at that in more, in more depth and also the covenant that God made with Noah and kind of wrap up our, our study of the flood. Again, there's so much more that we could talk about. I mean, there's so much more that, I mean, I can't even, I can't even get my, my head around all the information that's out there to, to discuss this great, this great um, subject. But, but I really wanted to kind of close on this, this, this great story of redemption. Uh, with Noah and how that's that's a, a representation of God's redemptive plan and purposes all throughout time and all throughout history and even into the New Testament even today. Any final thoughts or questions before we close? All right, let's pray. <clears throat>